Welcome to The Abandoned Carousel, the show where I take a deep dive into the stories of the most interesting abandoned and defunct theme parks and amusements in the world. I'm your host, Ashley. Buckle up. It's going to be a long one today. Today I'm telling you a story about a groundbreaking comic strip, about Lil Abner and Daisy May, about the rural purge, and about a theme park that became outdated and ground to a halt. There are legal battles and ownership struggles and so many acronyms and owners, it'll make your head spin. This is the long and sometimes unbelievable story of Dogpatch USA. This week, our story begins in perhaps a seemingly roundabout way. Do you remember Sadie Hawkins Day, that pseudo-holiday where girls ask boys to a dance? Maybe you don't. Maybe you're a younger listener from a more enlightened era who never had this phenomenon forced upon them. Let me explain. The tradition originated in the late 1930s, when culturally men did all the inviting and women were rarely socially allowed to do the same. The Sadie Hawkins dance and Sadie Hawkins day became a cultural phenomenon of gender role reversal. For once, women were allowed to ask men out to the big dance. Does it seem empowering? Does it seem enlightened? Maybe not as much as you might think. You see, Sadie Hawkins was not a real person. Sadie Hawkins was, quote, the homeliest gal in all them hills, end quote. She was a character from Al Cap's Lil Abner comic strip. She was an unmarried spinster, and when she reached the horrifying age of 35 years old and was still unmarried, her father came up with a plan to solve this terrible dilemma. This was originally depicted in the comic strip between November 13th through 30th, 1937. Sadie's father set up a foot race and invited all the unmarried men from the fictional town of Dogpatch, USA. Whichever man Sadie caught first at the end of the race was obligated by town law to marry her. For whatever reason, this idea caught fire. It spread out of the newspaper comic strip and into pop culture. By 1939, two years later, Sadie Hawkins had a double-page spread in Life magazine. And Sadie Hawkins Day was an annual feature of Al Cap's Lil Abner comic strip. You might also be saying to yourself, who or what is Lil Abner, and why should I care? You know, it's always so surprising when something once so incredibly popular and well-known is, in modern times, an unknown distant memory. As the wheel turns, so too go our cultural references. It's just the way it is. Lil Abner was a comic strip. It was written and drawn by Al Cap. It debuted in August of 1934 and ran daily until November of 1977. The strip was one of, if not the first comic strip to focus on the South. Before Lil Abner, comic strips were based around Northern experiences. Cap, probably unsurprisingly, was not actually from the South, despite the characters in his comic. The strip was set in the fictional town of Dogpatch. This was initially located in Kentucky, but later carefully only referred to as Dogpatch USA, likely to avoid offending Kentuckians and to avoid cancellations of the strip from Kentucky newspapers for unfair stereotypes. Cap described Dogpatch as, quote, an average Stone Age community nestled in a bleak valley between two cheap and uninteresting hills somewhere, end quote. 
And the plot? Not so much a plot-driven comic. This strip was about the characters and the socio-political commentary. This comic was loud, body, detailed, sexy. It poked sharp humor at the world. Lil Abner was an over-the-top stereotype of poverty and Appalachia. Residents of Dogpatch were ignorant and lazy or scoundrels and thieves. It wasn't without purpose, though. Reportedly, the characters in Lil Abner allowed Americans suffering through the Great Depression to laugh at someone who was even worse off than themselves. The stars of the strip were the titular Lil Abner and his love interest and later wife, Daisy May. Their nuptials actually landed them a Life magazine cover in March of 1952. There were also parents, Mammy and Pappy, and a host of other supporting characters. In addition, there were allegorical animals, including the fabulous Shmoo, which, quote, bred exponentially, consumed nothing, and eagerly provided everything that humankind could wish for, end quote. The Wikipedia article on the characters and settings of Dogpatch and Lil Abner is quite detailed if you're wanting more information about this comic strip. Lil Abner was a cultural phenomenon. It was like nothing anyone had seen before. And at its peak, the comic reportedly reached over 70 million households at a time when the U.S. population was only 180 million people. That's almost 40% of the population. John Steinbeck called Cap, quote, very possibly the best writer in the world today, end quote, in 1953, and reportedly even recommended him for the Nobel Prize in Literature. In a 1997 book, comics historian Richard Marshall said, quote, Cap was calling society absurd, not just silly, human nature not simply misguided, but irredeemably and irreducibly corrupt. Unlike any other strip, and indeed unlike many other pieces of literature, Lil Abner was more than a satire of the human condition. It was a commentary on human nature itself. End quote. Lil Abner marked a change in the tone of the comics world when it was introduced in the 1930s. It introduced politics and dark social commentary into a market that was primarily filled with lighthearted amusements meant for children. But as the popularity of Lil Abner grew, the audience makeup of the comic market shifted, becoming comprised of mostly adults for the Lil Abner comic. And Lil Abner was even reportedly the inspiration for Mad Magazine. Both captured the satirical dark humor that was becoming more popular with American audiences. Lil Abner was the subject of the first book-length scholarly critique of a comic strip as well. Quote, one of the few strips ever taken seriously by students of American culture, end quote, wrote Arthur Berger. Quote, Lil Abner is worth studying because of Cap's imagination and artistry and because of the strip's very obvious social relevance, end quote. Berger shows a little bit of bias here since he's the author of this first book critiquing the strip. On Amazon, it has exactly one review at the time of this recording, saying, quote, It wasn't what I expected since Lil Abner doesn't need to be psychoanalyzed, end quote. Now, beyond literary criticism, Lil Abner touched all parts of culture, particularly during the height of the comic strip's popularity between the 1940s and 1970s. At one point, Al Cap reportedly convinced six of the most popular radio personalities of the mid-40s to record a song that he'd written about Daisy May. One of these was Old Blue Eyes himself, Frank Sinatra. There was a radio drama, there was a Broadway musical, there were comic book anthologies, and a short-lived cartoon, and a live-action movie. And then, of course, there was licensing. 
Characters from Dogpatch were licensed to dozens of popular products throughout the decades, appearing throughout the grocery store and pharmacy aisles and on the pages of men and women's magazines alike. There were toys, games, clothes, and a series of family restaurants called Lil Abner's. All of them have gone out of business by the time of this recording in 2019. A Lil Abner's Steakhouse in Tucson, currently in operation, is unrelated to the Al Cap Comics brand. But beyond all of that, the reason that we're even talking about Lil Abner right now is Dogpatch USA, a theme park. Before it was Dogpatch USA, a now-abandoned theme park based on a once-incredibly popular media property, the land in the Ozarks, Harrison, and Jasper, Arkansas, was just a scenic spot off Arkansas Highway 7. The area was called Marble Falls, Arkansas. In the 40s, Albert Rainey purchased a trout farm. The Rainey family also owned the nearby Mystic Caverns. These were caves with beautiful natural formations— that had been commercial tourist attractions since the late 1920s. A local realtor, O.J. Snow, saw the potential in both the caverns and the Rainy Trout Farm when Rainy put up the trout farm for sale in 1966. So Snow gathered a group of businessmen and formed Recreation Enterprises Incorporated, REI, to develop the property into an amusement park. As a sidebar, this will be our first but definitely not last business acronym, Keep count, it's a fun game. REI approached Al Cap with their plans for the park, reportedly assuring him, perhaps somewhat ironically we'll find out, that the park would be quiet, dignified, and wouldn't have any roller coasters or thrill rides that would conflict with the hillbilly themes of Lil Abner. Cap ultimately consented, having turned down several theme park proposals in other areas in prior years. And the planning was on. Cap and his wife came to Arkansas for a groundbreaking ceremony in October of 1967. Reportedly, Dogpatch USA was the byproduct of his comic strip that made him most proud, as he said in his remarks during the ceremony. Quote, This is the one which will finally gain me some respect from my grandchildren, who until now have always thought of me as a silly man who just draws pictures. End quote. Local perception of the future park was mixed. State officials were reportedly concerned about the negative impressions of Arkansas due to the hillbilly stereotype of Lil Abner. Attendees of the 1967 Central Arkansas Urban Policy Conference also expressed doubts about the likelihood of success for the park, as many other parks in the decade prior had tried to replicate the success of Disneyland, 1955, but had failed. Still, the local Chamber of Commerce did ultimately approve plans for the park. This may have been in part due to an optimistic projection report from an L.A. consultant firm, which projected 400,000 visitors in year one, 1 million visitors in year 10, and an annual review of $5 million by year 10. These projections were incredibly optimistic in retrospect, as we'll later see, but they informed many of the early decisions for the park. So it turns out that Albert Rainey, who still maintained ties with the park, was actually the town postmaster. The post office is, and was, right in the Dogpatch USA parking lot. In 1968, Rainey helped the town of Marble Falls officially change their name to Dogpatch Arkansas to help promote the park. And you can actually still search for the park and the town by the name Dogpatch in Google Maps. Over $1.3 million was reportedly put into the park's Phase 1. Construction, according to some, was rushed, 
Scores of workers descended into the area in March, April, and May of 1968 in order to accommodate the opening day of mid-May 1968. REI renovated the Mystic Caverns that they'd purchased and renamed them Dogpatch Caverns. They installed lighting, handrails, additional safety features. Authentic 19th century log cabins were found elsewhere in the Ozarks, disassembled and painstakingly reassembled at Dogpatch USA. Additionally, an 1834 waterfall already on the property by the name of Peter Beller's Mill was restored to working condition for the park. And the mill was not only for looks. It actually operated. It ground corn into cornmeal, which was then packaged and sold to visitors. You see, one of the major pros of the park for the Chamber of Commerce was the Corn Pine Square business region, which employed many from the local area demonstrating and selling wares, arts, and crafts. One such building was called the Ladies' Brotherhood's Hand-Sewing Center for all things knit, sewn, or woven. There was a diamond and stone museum, including demonstrations from artisans. There was a honey shop, a glass-blowing center, a wood shop with wood carving, photo studio, pottery center, candle shop, and, of course, trout fishing. Opening day was May 17, 1968, and Dogpatch was immediately, at least at first, a success. Motels in the area reported hordes of tourists that they couldn't serve, even going so far as to seek private rooms in the area for the summer season in order to handle the crowds that they couldn't serve in their actual motels. Reportedly, there were about 8,000 visitors on opening day, with 300,000 visitors reported in the first year. They also reported a net profit of about $100,000 at the end of that first year, about $700,000 in today's money. Not too shabby, but not quite the 400,000 visitors that were projected by that L.A. firm prior to the project's start. Things at Dogpatch USA looked so sweet in those early days. A local 1968 op-ed wrote that Dogpatch, quote, had a good chance of becoming one of the nation's biggest tourist attractions, end quote. That same op-ed projected a gross of $12 million for the park in the first six years, adding, quote, the rest of Northwest Arkansas had better start rounding out their own tourist facilities to take advantage of the crowd, end quote. Now, I'm going to add a disclaimer here. This is the point where, to be honest, in my research, I would always get bored and confused in the story of Dogpatch USA. Hang in there if you feel the same way. I've punched it up a bit, and honestly, the story of Dogpatch USA is so much wilder when all of the details are left in instead of being glossed over. It's worth the ride. Okay, so REI, the developer group who owned the park, spent their first off-season fighting. They were fighting about how to use the profits from the first year of Dogpatch USA's operation. You see, many of the members actually wanted to divide the profits amongst themselves personally, while other members, including our realtor friend O.J. Snow, wanted to reinvest those profits in the park. And this dispute left an opening for an entrepreneurial spirit. So enter businessman Jess Odom. He saw that opportunity, and he purchased a controlling interest in the park from the REI members in late 1968. Right away, he signed a 30-year licensing agreement with ALCAP. The park had the rights to use CAP's Lil Abner intellectual property from 1968 through 1998, and in return, CAP would receive 2 to 3% of the gross profits of the park. Now, this was a sound business decision at the time. Lil Abner was huge in the end of the 60s. 
This was a hugely popular time for the comic strip, and essentially the idea was that the comic strip in each day's paper was almost free promotion for the Dogpatch USA theme park. But in addition to further licensing of the Lil Abner IP, Odom also had capital P plans for Dogpatch USA. He reportedly installed $350,000 worth of rides before the park reopened for the season in May of 1969. It's likely that one of these was the Frustratin' Flyer, a Monster Mouse model Alan Herschel Mad Mouse coaster. One other was the Earthquake Magoon's Brain Rattler, a Chance Rides prototype toboggan coaster. This ride was painted as a track wrapped around a metal tree. Riders in a small coaster car climbed vertically through the tree, then circled around the structure before doing a short out and back to the station. This ride bore serial number one from the factory in Wichita. Of course, if you're new to the podcast, check out the Joyland episodes or my recent CP Huntington train episode for more on chance rides. A scant 32 toboggans were manufactured. Most were built on trailers for portability. Earthquake Magoons was not. There are some conflicts about the reports about this ride. Some places say this coaster was introduced later on in the early to mid-80s. But this seems really unlikely given the manufacturer's date of 1969 and the manufacturing dates of other chance toboggans, so it is very likely that this ride was installed as early as 1969. Beyond rides, Odom hired former six-term Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus as president of Dogpatch USA in 1969. This was ultimately only a one-year position for Faubus that primarily consisted of promotional visits across the country, extolling the virtues of the theme park. Odom had arranged other cross-promotional opportunities as well. He held the first annual Miss Dogpatch contest in 1969, and he allowed the park to be a filming location for the 1969 horror flick It's Alive, which has Well, it has 2.7 stars out of 10 on IMDb, so that probably tells you something about the movie. You can actually find all of it on YouTube if you go look. The park was doing well, though. 1969 marked a high point in rustic hillbilly pop culture nationwide. Lil Abner was incredibly popular. It appeared in more than 700 U.S. newspapers daily. And shows with rustic rural themes like Green Acres, The Beverly Hillbillies, and Petticoat Junction were all massive hits on TV. And locally, there was another theme park with a similar country rustic theme that was finding success as well, Silver Dollar City, outside of Branson, Missouri. Things continued to go well for Dogpatch in its next few years. A motel made solely of mobile homes was completed in time for the 1970 opening day, as was a campsite with over 100 spaces. A funicular tram, essentially an angled railway going up and down a slope, was nearing completion and opened midway through the 1970 season. The funicular transported guests from the parking lot up at the top down to the theme park below. Odom was like Uncle Scrooge, seeing unlimited dollar signs. By this point, he'd bought out almost all the remaining REI investors and was essentially the new owner of Dogpatch USA. By 1972, a number of new rides were added, including animal exhibits with sea lions and exotic birds and a, quote, unique boat ride, end quote. This was simply called Boat Train Ride, and it involved a cast member driving a motorboat pulling a train of non-motorized boats behind it. The ride went up the creek to the mill and then back again. 1972 also saw an important announcement. 
the announcement of a new project called Marble Falls. This was to be a, quote, highly unique snow skiing and convention facility, which will offer a variety of seasonal attractions the year round, end quote. Odom saw this as a way of maximizing the potential of Dogpatch, continuing the profits of the park throughout the off-season. The ski center used snow machines to produce adequate ski slopes, and it also featured an ice skating rink, an inn, condos, and A-frame alpine chalets that were sold as timeshares to help defray costs. And of course, ironically, a snowstorm caused delays in the opening of Marble Falls. You see, the snow cannons were all stuck in a major snowstorm in Denver. I don't blame them, I've been there. That's brutal. Not only that, but it was icy on Marble Falls' opening day. It kept patrons away. Slopes were finally conditioned for skiing by New Year's, and for a few weeks, things went great. Unfortunately, that year it was an early spring, and by mid-February, it was too warm for even artificial snow. This, this pile of setbacks was to be the story of Marble Falls for each year of its operation. And many people, of course, point to Marble Falls as the tipping point in the history of Dogpatch and what essentially led to Dogpatch's downfall. Additional rides were added to Dogpatch USA in 1973, including a scrambler, go-karts, a shooting maze, a gallery, nope, a shooting gallery, a maze, and a swinging bridge. They all have little Abner-themed names, which I really don't need to go into here. Pappy Yoakum's positively petrifying putmobiles, indeed. The famous Kissing Rock sculpture was also added during this 1973 season. Two very large heads of characters, kissing, carved out of stone. 1974 saw additional new attractions, including a replica Native American village and Hairless Joe's Kickapoo Barrel. Now, this was a very memorable thrill ride, of which few photos exist. It's one of the rotor type, which were also called Devil's Hole and Hell Hole. Simple in concept, these were very, very popular around the 1950s. Riders were spun in a circle until centrifugal force pinned them to the wall of the barrel, and then the floor of the ride dropped out while the ride kept spinning. Now, this sounds absolutely terrifying to me, but I get that I'm a chicken about things. The park was very popular. You had the costumed characters walking around, interacting with people. You felt like you were in the Little Abner comic strip. And you had all this incredible theming. It was a very, very popular place to be. Attendance estimates for this time period vary wildly. 200,000 visitors per year to over 1 million visitors per year at the peak are reported. And it really did seem like prospects were looking up and up and up for Dogpatch even with the stops and starts of the Marble Falls Ski Project. But as with all good roller coasters, it was time to fall down. A number of factors came together at once to really seal the fate of Dogpatch. So nationally in the early 1970s, interest rates skyrocketed. Odom needed money for Dogpatch, so even though it was a bad time to borrow, he had no choice. He borrowed money from Union Planters Bank in Memphis, $2 $2 million in 1972, and an additional $1.5 million in 1973. An energy crisis kept travelers home due to the high cost of oil and gasoline during the oil embargo of 1973. And in pop culture, there was the rural purge. So what happened here was, network TV executives, especially those at CBS, began canceling rural rustic shows in favor of more urban-directed shows that were aimed at a different audience. 
Remember, this was a time when there were very few television channels. Everyone was watching the same couple of channels. Everyone was watching the same shows. Additionally at play here was the newly implemented prime time access rule. This forced networks to trim seven half-hour shows from 7.30 to 8 p.m. from their weekly programming and return that time to local stations. Shows had to go. Urban variety shows were the new trend, so even though shows like the Beverly Hillbillies were popular, they had to get off the network from the point of view of the network executive. And Lil Abner was still a daily comic strip, but in a declining number of papers. And the extensions of the property that were planned never happened given the changing cultural climate. There was no Lil Abner restaurant chain and no Lil Abner TV series. Al Cap was facing sexual assault charges. Cap's politics in his comic strip were changing. And back in the Ozarks, attendance numbers for Dogpatch USA in the 1970s were nowhere near expectations. Mild weather was spelling trouble. This was awful news for the ski lodge of Marble Falls. You can't have a ski lodge in warm weather, even if you can make artificial snow. Marble Falls sat empty and grassy and idle. Dogpatch USA made a moderate profit, but couldn't make up for the resulting lack of income from the Marble Falls side of things. Jess Odom was sitting at around $3.5 million in debt at this point. He tried some business maneuvers, but ultimately failed. Banks began seeking their money back. In 1977, Al Cap retired, ending the Little Abner Strip. This was a huge blow to the park. The Strip had essentially provided a constant widespread advertising for the park in a huge market. All told, expenses were up and profits were down. That same year of 1977, Odom made the decision to permanently close Marble Falls ski slopes. He cited the fact that the attraction had lost fifty dollars to $100,000 a year since its opening in 1972. Despite all that was happening, 1977 was reportedly the most profitable year yet, with the highest attendance numbers in the park's history. Odom tried to add some new attractions to stem the tide. There was something called the Slobavian Sled Run, there was a puppet theater and a spaceflight simulator, but it wasn't enough. In 1979, Odom announced that he was in talks to sell Dogpatch. He was going to sell Dogpatch to a nonprofit Christian group called God's Patch Incorporated, and he had reportedly been negotiating the deal privately for several years. If the deal were to go through, Dogpatch would ultimately be converted into a biblically-themed entertainment and convention center. Of course, we do know that the deal never went forward because God's Patch Inc. couldn't find sufficient matching investment funds before their allotted time in the deal ran out. Odom, Odom was feeling himself sinking under the weight of the high interest rates on his loans, so he tried something else. He went to the Harrison City Council. Remember that Dogpatch is right in between Harrison and Jasper, two different cities. And he tried to get their help in essentially refinancing all of his loans and extending the life of the loans while lowering the interest rates through the issuing of tourism bonds. Ultimately, he was asking the city for all of his personal money back out of the park for the city of Harrison to assume all the debts of the park and then for the park itself to be run by God's patch and not by him. Harrison City Council was not particularly excited by this proposal, and they asked to see his books. 
Not only that, but within a week of the meeting, two lawsuits were filed. The previous year, in 1978, a child fell over 20 feet after slipping between a ride and its loading platform. We don't know which one. A woman slipped and fell trying to catch the child. Both suffered spinal injuries and permanent disabilities as a result. And they sought over $200,000 in compensation, alleging in their suits that Dogpatch had been negligent in ride design, safety, and employee training. The lawsuits took two years to settle, but they left a bad taste in the mouths of Harrison City Council. The Harrison City Council rejected Odom's bond proposal, and they rejected his subsequent follow-up bond proposal. Council members reportedly went on record at the time to say that the entire community was against any bonds relating to Dogpatch. The general sense was that the community knew the shape of it. They didn't want any part in the bad deal Odom was trying to pass off on someone else. On the public-facing side of things, some new attractions did continue to materialize again at the park, doing little to ultimately improve attendance. There was a trained bear act and the first appearance of a costumed schmoo character. In 1980, we form a new business entity. This time it's called Ozark Family Entertainment, O-F-E. O-F-E stated that they had no connection with Dogpatch, although later records reportedly indicated that multiple people associated with OFE had been in management positions at Dogpatch or had been involved in other business dealings with Odom. Several people were reportedly interested in moving Dogpatch to a new location, and Odom was reportedly no longer interested in being the owner of the park. The newest idea was that now they'd try getting Jasper, Newton County, where most of Dogpatch was actually physically located, to issue tourist bonds. Didn't work in Harrison, so now they're going to try it in Jasper. The gist of their proposal here was that they wanted no property taxes to pay on almost a thousand acres of developed land, and they wanted these tourist bonds for cheap money. OFE negotiated to purchase Dogpatch. So currently Dogpatch was owned by REI, and OFE was negotiating to purchase it. This was unsurprisingly approved by the shareholders, So Newton County tentatively agreed to this bond proposal only if OFE could find buyers for all of the bonds and convince Dogpatch USA's creditors to accept the bonds in lieu of payment. So OFE seemed to think that they had this in place. This is a huge, mind-numbingly complex situation and one of the many that's involved with this park. But we move forward. Like I said, all the details make the story more interesting. So, REI maintained ownership of the park for the summer of 1980, but OFE managed it. And the banks and creditors sat back, waiting on the bond issue through the summer season to see how profitable Dogpatch USA could be without the weight of the now-closed Marble Falls Ski Resort. Okay, it seemed straightforward. Unfortunately, what happened was a massive heat wave. 1980 saw what was reportedly the hottest summer in Arkansas history, with more triple-digit days that year than almost any prior year. Trees and plants withered, water sources dried up, and people stayed inside. They didn't want to be out at a theme park in humid 100-plus degree temperatures. The months rolled on, and summer at Dogpatch USA in 1980 was a bust. By the end of August, the creditors had seen enough. They were not willing to accept the bonds as payment. And 
additional banks began suing Dogpatch and its holding companies over their unpaid ballooning debts. The bond issue was not going anywhere. Odom tried to get the banks to allow delayed payments on some of his debts, but they were not having any of it. And the lawsuits over the child and woman injured at the park were settled during this time as well, for an undisclosed amount of money. In October of 1980, Union Planters Bank, to which Dogpatch owed millions, filed to take possession of Dogpatch in Marble Falls. In November of 1980, Dogpatch filed for bankruptcy. Their filing reportedly listed 90 creditors owed $3.2 million, including personal debts to Al Cap and Jess Odom himself. OFE would not be able to buy the park unless these creditors were all paid off. The bank, Union Planters, took possession of Dogpatch USA, including most of the associated businesses as well. Hotels, chalets, post office, restaurant, and service stations. But despite their ownership on paper, Union Planters was reportedly ready to sell very quickly. They were located in Memphis, and that was almost 300 miles from Dogpatch USA. Here, we enter another period of very confusing legal ownership, but this is the story of Dogpatch USA. On its face, it was this interesting hillbilly theme park. But on the less public side, there was nothing but legal and financial complications. Union planters expected that Dogpatch wouldn't open in the 1981 season, but it did actually end up doing so. We enter Wayne Thompson. He was one of the former members of OFE and a former general manager at Dogpatch USA during the 1974-75 season. He formed a new company. This one's called Ozarks Entertainment Incorporated, OEI, because who doesn't love another confusing acronym? OEI purchased Dogpatch and much of its assets for an undisclosed sum early in 1981. Now, at this time, they did begin to do uh, the chopping up of the large property that you can still see reflected today. So... While OEI purchased Dogpatch, the bank retained much of the Marble Falls Ski Resort part of the property, so the part that was up on the top of the hill. And they auctioned this property off in April of 1981. And we'll get back to this in a minute. They also sold the Dogpatch Caverns. These were purchased by Albert Rainey, part of the family that owned the trout farm originally. And they were renamed back to Mystic Caverns and continued operating as a tourist attraction. So, Wayne Thompson... As mentioned, he'd originally been a general manager of Dogpatch back in 1974 and 75. So in the intervening years between his management and his ownership of the park, he reportedly managed a different park down in Florida. So he leveled up his park management skills. And as the 80s rolled on and Dogpatch USA began operations under Thompson and OEI, it was clear that he'd learned some useful things. For instance, he cut staff from 600 in 1980 down to 250 in 1981. He focused on upgrading landscaping, adding additional arts and craft shows. Thompson even reinvested in the park's infrastructure. He worked with a local firm to rebuild the Marble Falls water wheel at the base of the waterfall. They used original period woodworking techniques and the original cast iron spike still drilled into the rock at the base of the waterfall. And, of course, Thompson added new rides. The iconic Wild Water Rampage, this big water slide that you can still see in almost all the pictures of the property in its abandoned state, 
was installed for the 1984 operating season. And Thompson had lots of performing acts signed to play at Dogpatch. He had big name acts, sometimes even before they were famous. Ike and Tina Turner, Hank Thompson, and Reba McIntyre all performed at Dogpatch USA's amphitheater at around this time. Denver Pyle from the popular TV show Dukes of Hazard was signed on as spokesman for the park, and Thompson signed licensing deals galore. There were Spider-Man, Batman, and Captain America all on hand for autographs and appearances. And at the same time, Coke, Dr. Pepper, and Tyson Foods licensed their brand for amphitheaters, buildings, and season passes. All told, Dogpatch USA recovered from its slumps in 1979 and 1980 and made a profit in 1981. Reportedly, attendance was up 21%, although this practically should have been a guarantee after the 1980 heat wave. While the park seemed to be recovering on the public front, though, more was going on behind the scenes. The courts were restructuring the debt after bankruptcy. You remember how I gave you that disclaimer about the confusing nature of this story? I've got to be honest. This right here is almost where I've given up on this episode so many times. There's a reason that this episode has taken quite a long time to come out. It's an alphabet soup of confusion. I promise the story is more interesting with all the details, so stay with me. Okay, we have a new company. This time, we've got Dog Patch Properties, Inc., or DPP. Remember how I said that Marble Falls, the Marble Falls part of the property, had been auctioned separately? Well, DPP was a group of businessmen who formed this company and arranged to buy the Marble Falls part. The plan was that secured interests in the property would be paid off first, and then unsecured interests in the property would be paid off next, somehow with Jess Odom still in the mix to manage expenses only. And somehow, too, was introduced the concept of selling parts of this property as timeshares. So we have yet another new company. We have Buffalo River Resorts, or BRR, still an Odom Enterprise, And this one reportedly existed as a company only to sell timeshares for DPP. Why all the shell companies? Probably to keep the name Dogpatch off the sales and ad copy and keep that associated bad taste out of people's mouths. Okay, so we've got these companies. What happens? State laws get changed. One of Arkansas state laws got changed, and uh uh-oh, this one concerns timeshares. This here is one of the most confusing part of the legal entanglements for this story. So, essentially, the Timeshare Act of 1983 was Act 294. It required that timeshare properties be registered with the State Real Estate Commission prior to being sold. And this, in turn, would require that, quote, BRR furnish the purchaser with releases from all liens or to put up a bond or buy insurance or to provide a document in which the mortgage holder subordinates his rights to those of the purchaser. I'm going to be totally honest. This is legal spaghetti. I think very few people understand what actually went on, but you can get into a little bit more of the details than I'm telling you at the website of Arkansas Road Stories. And their piece on Dogpatch is incredibly well-researched and it does provide a solid backbone for my episode that you're hearing right now. 
Here we go. The long and short of it was that there was a lot of legal mess, roughly boiling down to damned if you do and damned if you don't. They couldn't follow this new Timeshare Act, and they couldn't not follow this Timeshare Act. It took until 1984 when the lawyers found a loophole. Essentially, the courts made a decision to exempt BRR from registering with the State Real Estate Commission. There was only one catch, and that was any timeshare buyers had to be informed that banks had liens on the properties, and therefore that the banks could potentially repossess the timeshares if DPP and BRR didn't pay their debts. Unsurprisingly, the number of timeshare sales subsequently dropped. Okay. After the dust from the OEI ownership and this BRR timeshare kerfuffle had settled down, things were kind of quiet at Dogpatch for a few years, and then came 1987. In 1987, we enter the Entertainment and Leisure Corporation, Telcor. They came on the scene. They purchased a controlling interest, 90%, in Dogpatch USA for an undisclosed sum, leaving the remaining 10% in the hands of a few area residents. Well, that was abrupt. How did this all come about? So it turns out Telcor is another new company. It's always new companies. Telcor was formed in order to buy and manage theme parks. It was headed by this guy named Melvin Bell, who at the time also owned Deer Forest Park in Michigan and Magic Springs in Arkansas. We'll get there, though not in this episode, but Magic Springs was shuttered for five years starting in 1995 before a massive revitalization project, and Deer Forest Park is already on my master abandoned park list. Spoilers! Aside from theme parks, Melvin Bell had made a name and a lot of money for himself in both waste management and restaurant training. Two separate businesses. Of course, there was a dog patch connection with this business. We shouldn't be surprised. And this came from the new president of Telcor, one Wayne Thompson, who should be a familiar name by now as the general manager of Dog Patch for most of the 80s and the current OEI owner. And funnily enough, another principal owner of OEI, Sam Sutherland, became VP of Telcor and became finance manager for all three Telcor parks. It's not really clear how this business decision came about, whether it was corporate poaching, perhaps some solid lateral business moves, something more insidious, who knows. The sense overall from my research is that the acquisition by Telcor was well-received by the public. After all, Melvin Bell had deep pockets, and Telcor had promised to spend a lot of money on improvements to the park. Well, they sort of did that. They did add a new ride called Space Shuttle didn't really seem to fit the rustic theming of Dogpatch USA very well. I haven't dwelled on the theming very much. I mean, we're almost an hour into this episode already, because this story is mostly about ridiculous money mismanagement and legal mumbo-jumbo. But I've already mentioned several times, Rustic was out. This is the late 80s now. Rustic was very out, clean and shiny and new was in. And Dogpatch USA was never going to fit that new trend without a massive re-theming. Barring that, they just sort of shoehorned whatever new ride or attraction they thought was fun and put it into place and hoped for the best. Leave the theming to Disney, it seems. But they did at least take a stab at improving maintenance. Anyhow, reportedly attendance was up 60% in the first year with Telcor compared to 1981, that first year with OEI. 
I don't know why this is the comparison. This is the comparison I found in my research. Whatever. If we flip back to the less public side of things, the BRR and DPP timeshare side of things, we will still be mired in legal spaghetti. I know I told you it was over. It's never over. Three banks' rights to foreclose on Jess Oda were upheld by the U.S. 8th District Court of Appeals. Summarizing and reading between the lines, it appears that the court placed the responsibility for Dogpatch USA, DPP, and BRR all solely at the feet of Jess Odom personally. Quote, if Dogpatch Properties, Inc., DPP, can't pay, the debtor will be responsible for the liens, the money will come out of the debtor's estate, and unsecured creditors will get nothing. End quote. In 1988, Wayne Thompson parted ways with Melvin Bell, and therefore with Telcor and Dogpatch USA. A person named Lynn Spradley became the general manager in his place, and this was a man with 14 years of experience already at Dogpatch USA in other positions. In his next few years at Dogpatch as a general manager, he was reportedly often bemoaning the situation Dogpatch USA was in. As I've said, the theming had really taken a dive, and Rustic was out, 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 not in. The Lil Abner strip had been out of print in papers for over a decade at that point. Spradley said, quote, a lot of kids don't have any idea who Daisy May and Lil Abner are, end quote. Reportedly, Dogpatch had to spend more per patron than comparable parks on various promotions in order to even attract guests to the park. And we haven't really mentioned it a lot, but not only was theming a problem, location was always a problem too with Dogpatch. Dogpatch is and was on this side highway. It was on a back road. And as we know by now on the abandoned carousel, location is a huge factor. You might even remember many, many minutes ago, Silver Dollar City in Branson, Missouri was a relatively close attraction. It was just 50 miles north, just over the Missouri-Arkansas border. Spoiler alert, this park is still open. Dogpatch USA, not still open. Silver Dollar City is and was an 1880s-themed Ozark village. There were crafts, tradesmen demonstrations, there were stages and performances, there are multiple coasters and rides, and there's Marvel Cave, a cave that's been open for tourists since 1894. Does it all kind of sound like a better version of Dogpatch? Kind of. Sorry, Dogpatch stands. And if Silver Dollar to City didn't have it, Ozark Folk Center, an Arkansas state park, was a short distance to the east to meet craftsmen and Ozark heritage needs. As one author nicely put it, Dogpatch was, from the beginning, too hokey and jokey with its Lil Abner dark satirical comic strip theme to ever successfully emulate a grander and more polished place like Silver Dollar City. And where Dogpatch does bear some resemblances to, say, a rustic version of a Six Flags park, with its mishmash of attractions and themes and licensed properties, it was located in the wrong place to ever draw enough crowds to succeed with that audience. Dogpatch USA's only true advantage over other local attractions was always the Lil Abner IP. But every year past that strip's retirement, the park declined in cultural relevance. Dogpatch was simply outdated. If you have to explain to your kids that Daisy May was a character in a comic strip that ended when you, the parent, were a kid, well you begin to see the discouragement that had to be setting in for those in ownership. 
at Dogpatch USA. Melvin Bell sat down in 1991 and he began making major changes. He saw the writing on the wall. And local civic leaders in Jasper and Harrison were all publicly voicing their concerns about whether the park would ever be viable and profitable again. The park was still operational, but it wasn't doing well. So Melvin Bell made changes. The Lil Abner theming was dropped. Melvin Bell and Telcor decided that they could save, remember they were giving 2 to 3% of gross profits straight to the Alcap estates. So they decided if they cut the theming and the licensing for Lil Abner, they could keep that for themselves. So they renamed the park Dogpatch Arkansas instead of Dogpatch USA, and they waved goodbye to that licensing fee. Not only that, but the entry fee was dropped as well. Yes, as a cost-saving measure. They lengthened the season. Instead of charging a park admission, they charged per ride on the attractions. And they reframed the park as an arts and crafts-focused place. And this brought more bodies into the park, potentially meaning more dollars in the pocket. General Manager Lynn Spradley left Dogpatch in 1991 as well. He became a plumber, apparently. In his place... Shirley Cooper stepped in, an 11-year veteran of the Dogpatch world, serving as general manager for the park's last two years. Yes, despite all these changes, there wasn't long left for Dogpatch, even with every major change that Bell and Telcor put in place. Visitors during these last years noted declining maintenance, things like the train's PA system being on the fritz, Additions of really generic, outdated carnival rides, like kind of broken tilt-a-whirls trying to boost income. Nothing helped. Dogpatch USA's last day of operation was October 14, 1993. Quote, there were a lot of mistakes, bad judgment calls, end quote. Bud Pelser, a later owner of the park, is quoted as saying, quote, I don't know that they could have made good ones. The United States was going through some serious transitions in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. End quote. Ultimately, with the park shut down, the park was foreclosed upon yet again. Bell and Telcor had actually done pretty well on taking down that pile of debt, but almost half a million was reportedly still outstanding. In December of 1994, the park was put up for auction. The new owners were CL and Ford Carr. They were also called Leisure Tech Corporation and West Tech Corporation. And during these transition years, many options for revitalization were floated in public commentary, you know, newspaper articles, stuff like that. People talked about converting the space into a movie ranch, an ecotourism spot, a better version of an Ozark history spot, but nothing ever came of any of it. The park just sat there. It was already rustic, and nature began to take it back. Up at Marble Falls, there was a bit of action. In 1997, reportedly facing public pressure, the official name of the post office and the town was changed from Dogpatch back to Marble Falls. Despite this, however, Google will still accept your search for Dogpatch, Arkansas, and give you the right place. Back in 1988, when DPP was divvying out shares of the Marble Falls ski resort land, a woman named Deborah Nielsen began purchasing what she could, when she could. According to news reports, she eventually owned much of the Marble Falls attraction area. She owned the ski lodge, the convention center, the roller skating rink, and a motel. She reportedly named this 
this whole property Serenity Mountain. The skating rink she apparently released for a time to a nonprofit called Help, providing therapeutic horseback riding at no cost. And additionally, she reportedly operated a B&B as well as a church on the land for some time, although I've been an, unable to find additional information on this. What I did find was a few businesses clustered in the former Marble Falls buildings. I'll get into more details later, but there is and was a Marble Falls resort and restaurant, which advertises some incredibly tasty-looking fried catfish on its social media accounts, and a place called The Hub. Both cater to motorcycle enthusiasts. Well, one does, one did. The Hub closed in 2017 after 12 years of operation. We'll get there. So back down the hill at Dogpatch, things were kind of stagnant. There were rumors and reports, but no activity towards revitalization of any kind. The park simply sat there and nature took it back. In 2002, Ford Car listed Dogpatch USA on eBay at a starting minimum bid of $1 million. There were no takers. In 2005, things changed again. Enter Pruitt Nance. Then... 16. His grandfather was reportedly one of Dogpatch's original shareholders, and Nance had grown up going to the park. When it closed in 1993, he reportedly regularly spent time on the former parkland, apparently with permission of the property owners. In 2005, he was ATV riding on the property, again with permission. He hit a wire that had been strung between two trees, and he was severely injured, nearly decapitated his trachea was separated, and his neck was reportedly broken. Doctors did not expect him to survive. And when he did, they didn't expect him to ever even talk again. But Nance proved them wrong again on both counts. Nance and his father filed a lawsuit against the owners, alleging that they'd put the wire there on purpose as a deterrent against vandals with malicious intent. The case actually made it all the way up to the Arkansas Supreme Court, and the court ultimately ruled in favor of Nance. Between Nance and his father, the dogpatch owners were ordered to pay almost a million dollars, $764,582 in damages to include medical bill costs within 45 days of the decision. The owners could not, would not, or did not pay. So ultimately, the judge gave the deed to Dogpatch to Pruitt Nance, and he became the new owner of Dogpatch. Quote, I do have the ability to change things for the better, of course, end quote, he said to the local newspaper in 2011. He was also pragmatic in his comments to the newspaper, which I found very refreshing. He stated that he was only 23 at that time and didn't have experience or knowledge to properly deal with the ruins of Dogpatch. It was reported that Pruitt Nance and his father Stuart Nance were taking the project one day at a time. It took a few more years, but it turns out that they did eventually decide to sell Dogpatch. In summer of 2014, it found a new owner. This time, Bud Pelsor, inventor of the spill-proof dog bowl and his business partner, Jim Robertson, CFO of Great American Spillproof Products. If you're curious about this, Pelsor's Dog Wolf Hybrid is the spokesdog for the product. Her name is Miss Arkansas Diamond, or Dia, Dia for short, and she's a lovely animal. 
The bowl is sold with the tagline, quote, dogs love it because water does not go up their nose. You love it because you have less mess, end quote. Honestly, I'm tempted to purchase one for my own dogs after my research. The story goes that Pelsor had briefly visited Dogpatch in its heyday. Talking to the newspaper at the time of the purchase, he said, quote, I saw how the local residents thrived from it. All the houses along the road had jellies, jams, quilts for sale. I was really impressed with it. I kept making trips down here, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. End quote. Pelsor's business partner, Jim, made him aware that the park was up for sale in 2014. And they purchased Dogpatch to the tune of $2 million, reportedly backed by promises of additional external grant money from other investors. And as a sidebar, the property records are, of course, freely accessible by the public. They tell a fascinating legal and tax version of the story I'm telling you here. It's worth checking out if you're into that sort of thing. Pelsor wasn't particularly interested in restoring and reopening Dogpatch as it was, however. Quote, Resurrecting the dead is something best for someone other than me, end quote. He's quoted as saying, he had plans for the village at Dogpatch, as he was going to call it. It was going to be an ecotourism place for reintroducing native mussels to the creek, maybe for restocking that famous trout pond. He wanted a more arts and crafts focused place, maybe bring back the music, maybe a restaurant, but not a theme park. Regardless of the ultimate theme, with Pelsor as the new owner, he did have immediate plans for cleaning and maintaining the property. Volunteers apparently came out for weekends on end to help him clean up the property, and he just cut back all the massive flora that was taking over the remaining rides and buildings, trying to get the area maintained again. The crowds were incredible. Traffic was reportedly backed up on Highway 7 for his December 2014 public opening, It was the first time the park had been open to the public for 21 years. Over 5,000 people were reported in attendance at this time. This is pretty impressive for a defunct theme park abandoned for 21 years. He had several of these events called Riverwalk events where he allowed the public to see the cleaned up dog patch, hosted music, stuff like that. Plans for any future project, though, didn't move very fast. Unsurprising as I've learned from firsthand experience about construction timelines, but he had external setbacks as well. In February 2015, a few months after he took ownership of the park, three buildings were burned down. Of course, arson was suspected. In May of 2015, it was time for more Riverwalk events at Dogpatch again. This time, the framing was as an artist's village type event. Musical acts performed and artists demonstrated their craft. Many pieces were dogpatch-themed as well. Arrowheads made out of broken glass from the site, pictures of the abandoned site pasted onto wood, stuff like that. But still, things were moving slowly. It seemed like it was setback after setback. There were floods. The overgrown buildings required extensive maintenance before any new construction could be done. And then came the news that the promises for big-name support and grant money for the park were empty, useless promises. Pelsor is quoted as saying that it, quote, left me with my pants down and exposed to chiggers, end quote. And Bud's business partner wanted out too, reportedly due to poor health. In March of 2016, Dogpatch USA went up for sale again, either the whole thing or just half. Pelsor was willing to remain co-owner if someone else was interested in being his business partner. Quote, 
I don't want to sell out, but my business associate does. I have the option to buy him out, but I can't. End quote. It took over a year, but in late 2017, after months, Pelsor announced that he'd come to an agreement with a group called Heritage USA to lease the property. No, not that Heritage USA. This was not the famous Christian Disneyland Jim Baker Pyramid Scheme Heritage USA. This group was, at least supposedly, unrelated, operated by a guy named David Hare. In YouTube videos, Hare looks and speaks like a TV preacher. Well, uh, an awful lot like Jim Baker, to be honest. He's filmed wearing button-down shirts and slicking his hair back. His background is as an executive member of the Las Vegas broadcasting company America's TV Network, a very small media company. Prior to that, he did musical productions in Anaheim and hosted a kids' radio show in the 80s and 90s. For months prior to the official announcement, Hare posted vague and confusing videos about the forthcoming deal with Dogpatch. But what was eventually announced was that Heritage USA and David Hare would lease the main Dogpatch property with a potential purchase agreement at the end of the lease period. In addition to making a deal with Pelsor, Hare and Heritage USA also made a deal with Deborah Nielsen for a similar lease purchase agreement on the Marble Falls Hotel and Convention Center properties. Hare and Heritage USA posted multiple videos about the site online, often rambling. They branded themselves as, quote, your conservative entertainment company, end quote. Nothing is or was ever very clear with the Heritage USA operations of Dogpatch from what I've been able to see. But it appears that they plan to have a resort, a theme park, a hotel, a theater, and an RV park opening in stages. Reportedly, a new train was supposed to be one of the first things to open in 2019. Based on their social media postings, things went okay for the first few months. They were active on social media, they showed progress on the land, a full house at the hotel, tours, and other special events. But somewhere in June of 2018, things seemed to have gone awry. On June 28, 2018, Hare published a frankly quite rambling video on his Heritage USA YouTube channel about the quote-unquote challenges he sees facing the company and project going forward. The gist seems to be that his investors decided to bail on their support of the Heritage USA project, but that he himself was not going to bail. In his comments, he insists that it didn't require a lot of money to operate the site, and several times over the course of the video, he reiterates that the property owners, quote, deserve to get their money, end quote. Obvious statement, as this was a legal contract he had entered into. The overall tone of this video is of a man rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And it's difficult to put together the pieces from where I'm sitting in 2019, as several of Hare's Heritage USA videos have been deleted. But Hare does go on to say in this June 28th video, quote, Do you realize we could start paying the bills up here if people would start really renting rooms? If we had a good influx of steady bookings, we could make it. That's how reasonable it is. End quote. It's so classic, of course, to shift the blame to others. He closes the video saying, quote, don't count us out, end quote, but then adds, quote, don't make reservations for October either, end quote. Essentially, it looks like Hare was never able to fulfill his end of the bargain, or perhaps never intended to. 
Some online even speculate that the Heritage USA name was intentional and that the only real intent behind the park plans was a church or a religious cult of some kind. The way it happened was that Hare posted on social media advertising the park, but the hotel was vacant when paid guests showed up, utilities had been turned off, Hare and Heritage USA vanished in the night, completely unreachable. See, Deborah Nielsen filed an eviction notice in July. She required Heritage USA to be out within 10 days as a result of non-payment of rent. Not just a short-term lack of non-payment either. They had apparently never paid her any rent, nor had they paid rent to Pelsor. Heritage USA, in turn, reportedly claimed that this eviction was a breach of their lease and requested mediation. Deborah Nielsen went ahead and filed a lawsuit in Newton County Circuit Court in August of 2018, saying mediation was pointless because Heritage USA had not made any payments on their lease, which had reportedly begun in January of 2018. Heritage USA had originally agreed to pay $5,500 a month just for the Marble Falls portion of the land alone. This included the old hub property, the motel and convention center, as well as the old skating rink. Quote, the lease began January 15th and was to continue until January 14th, 2020, at which time Heritage USA Ozarks Resort was to purchase the property for $750,000 if the company didn't opt to do so sooner. End quote. And an immediate hearing was scheduled because the property was in a state of emergency. Apparently, Hare hadn't paid anyone. He hadn't paid the insurance companies either, nor the water company, nor the electric company. So all insurance and utility services had been shut off. And, reportedly, Hare disappeared. According to the newspaper articles, Nielsen's attorney has exhausted every possible resource available to him to find Hare. Pelsor described Hare as, quote, larger than life, end quote, and defended his original decision to work with Hare and Heritage USA in an August 2018 newspaper article. Quote, he had sound investors that were contractors. He had sound financial management. He had a good team assembled, and that's what we looked at, end quote. But Pelsor continued in comments to the local news at the time, saying, quote, now it looks almost like it did when I bought it, a wasteland. Everything's grown up and ugly again, and it happened because David Hare made promises he couldn't keep. End quote. By all accounts, Hare was all talk, and he burned bridges with those around him. And once again, Dogpatch USA as a theme park was abandoned. Of course, in Monday morning quarterbacking, people have plenty of opinions about the many ups and downs the park has gone through. Quote, the roads to Dogpatch were so rugged, so it was never an easy destination to reach, end quote, says one person in the comment section of a newspaper article. Many other folks remember the park with fond nostalgia from attending there in the 70s and 80s, though, and they praise the inexpensive pricing, the fun theming, the great destination for families. It does seem like the park was originally a little bit magical, like something from a simpler time, surrounded by the natural beauty of northern Arkansas. And the theming really reflected the history of the people of the area, at least at first. But in its abandonment, it only had offerings for those interested in abandoned places and urban exploration. Residents and former visitors described the area as a hazard, rotten and falling down. Many called it a problem. And it seems like most people just want the eyesore to go away. 
There's nostalgia for the past, yes, but it seems like people have been burned too many times in too many different supposed revitalizations of the place. And, you know, Dogpatch in the theming is incredibly outdated. Al Cap, while being an excellent writer and artist, was also a known womanizer, a misogynist, and an accused rapist, including allegations by actresses Goldie Hawn and Grace Kelly. And his Lil Abner comic strip has been out of publication for 42 years, as of this recording. Arkansas residents didn't want to be seen as hillbillies back then, and that theming probably wouldn't fly in today's culture either. An online commenter summed it up, quote, not worth tearing down and there's no market for it if it was restored, end quote. Now in 2019, the park is back in the hands of Bud Pelsor. He's quoted in an interview with Bell Star Antiques, saying that he simply plans to, quote, clean it up, turn the lights on, the music up loud, and party until it says sold on the sign, end quote. Yes, Dogpatch USA is currently back up for sale. The address is 256-NC-3351, Marble Falls, Arkansas, 72648. At the time of this recording, asking price is just under $1.5 million. I'll link the listing in the show notes, where you can find references and a complete transcript, theabandonedcarousel.com, backslash 19. Do you want to visit Dogpatch USA yourself? Well, reportedly, Pellsource sometimes allows visitors arranged ahead of time for a modest $5 fee. While The Hub, which was a former motorcycle motel and bar, had shut down earlier, there were, of course, plenty of places that used to occupy former Marble Falls and Dogpatch property. And while some of them have shut down, like the former Hub Motel, Um, As I mentioned earlier, that was, of course, where Heritage USA made its base of operations. New things are in operation at Dogpatch and Marble Falls today. There's still the U.S. Post Office. There's a fairly new campground. It's called Cabin Patch USA. This is aimed at revitalizing the old campground at Dogpatch, and the views look incredible. Marble Falls Resort and Restaurant is a recent effort from Deborah Nielsen, the current landowner of most of the old Marble Falls property. Operating in the former facilities of The Hub and Heritage USA, this place is currently operational and looks to be a very nice place to visit and stay. And, as I mentioned, delicious-looking fried catfish advertised on their social media. And, of course, you can still find a little bit of Dogpatch USA in one of its former rides. The Waterslide, Wild Water Rampage, of course, still stands in state at the abandoned Dogpatch. It's missing steps. It's rusty, it's full of splinters, and it will never be an operational ride again. Pretty much an insurance nightmare. Other rides are still on-site too, abandoned when the park closed. The funicular tram still sits there, rusted in place. The paddle boats? Those too were left on the property after its abandonment and are now long stolen or broken. Many of the other rides were sold or destroyed. Whereabouts of the carousel, the paratrooper, the Slobavian sled run, the spaceship, the barrel ride? All unknown. Close to home, the Dogpatch Caverns, as mentioned earlier, were sold in 1981. They were renamed back to Mystic Caverns and are still open for curious cavers at the time of this recording. The small coaster that was once at Dogpatch was called Frustrating Flyer. It was a Herschel, Wild Mouse, Monster Mouse model. 
Reportedly, this coaster was even wild during the park's operation, with one guest commenting online that they could actually see the bolts holding the ride in place moving while the ride operated. While some sources state that this ride went to the Little America theme park after Dogpatch was shuttered in 93, this would not be accurate. Little America owns a wild mouse model, not a monster mouse model. A close comparison of the track layout from photos and on-ride videos makes this clear. The only operational Herschel Monster Mouse coaster at this time is at Parque Aquatico Rey Park in Ecuador, and the location of Dogpatch's former frustrating flyer, unknown. What is at Little America, though, is the infamous Earthquake Magoon's Brain Rattler. If you head on over to Marshall, Wisconsin, some 10 hours north of the former Dogpatch USA, you can ride the last toboggan coaster known in operation at this time, now with a simpler name, Wild and Wooly Toboggan. Little America only runs one car on the coaster now, though, instead of the two it has capacity for, and the ride does admittedly break down often. Spoilers. What about the miniature train that used to run at the park? It was called the West Poke Chop Special, and it was actually three different Chance CP Huntington trains, each of which had been heavily modified. On some, that lovingly ridiculous smokestack was removed and replaced with a crooked stovepipe. At the time of its construction, the West Poke Chop Special was the first and only railroad in Newton County, Arkansas. One online commenter suggested that one of the trains had been cannibalized for parts for the Kansas City Zoo. This doesn't fit what's known about the trains from the C.P. Huntington train project, though. For more on that, of course, you need to listen back to my C.P. Huntington episode from last week. What we do know is that Dogpatch had C.P. Huntington number 64, number 69, and another unknown train. They were all given the name West Pokechop Special. All engines were custom-themed. One was originally light green and orange, later black. Others were themed to the train from the comic strip. All of the engines pulled custom coaches with wood-shingled roofs. Richmond Country Farms up in British Columbia purchased CP Huntington No. 64 in 2013 and has been refurbishing it over the intervening years. You see... Word had been going around that the dog patch train was quote-unquote just rotting in some Kansas field somewhere. Well, it turns out that this, at least supposedly, was that rumor train. Here's a quote from the Richmond Country Farms website. Quote, It has been a dream of ours to have an operational railroad and miniature train for many years. We found our train tucked away on a farm in Wichita, Kansas in 2010. After many phone calls and emails, we were able to secure a deal. After arriving home, we began an extensive five-year full restoration of the locomotive and coaches. Construction of the railroad began in summer of 2014, finishing just in time for October for the grand opening of the train and our annual pumpkin patch. End quote. I've seen video of the coaches cleaned up and operating, sent to me by Chris Chirilla from the CP Huntington Train Project, and they are very nice indeed. Good job on you, Richmond Country Farms. Ultimately, Dogpatch USA was always in a state of flux, and it still continues to be in a state of flux today. Whatever does end up happening at Dogpatch and Marble Falls, the tagline for the place will likely always hold true. It was a heck of a day at Dogpatch USA. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Abandoned Carousel, where we talked about the long and winding story of Dogpatch USA down in Arkansas. I'd like to thank John Kay for suggesting this week's episode. I'd also like to thank Arkansas Road Stories for their excellent article on Dogpatch USA. Of course, you can always find all show notes and references at my website. For this episode, it's theabandonedcarousel.com backslash 19. I'd love to hear about your stories from Dogpatch USA, and I'd love to hear what you'd like to hear about next on the show. I'll be back soon with another great episode, so I'll see you then. As Lucy Maud Montgomery once said, nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it.